Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Reading, can we look at the early history of the ashes for a new book? So I got the author on. My name is Arun Sengupta, or for the Indians what used to it, Arunava Sengupta, and I'm a cricket writer. We talked WG Grace, Ivo Bly, Ted Pooley in jail, how Billy Murdoch took a cash against his own team, the Imperial Cricket Conference, the big ship, and we'll get him in singles. I got you on to talk about this book. I don't think I've ever actually had a book to be able to show on this podcast. I mean, obviously, if you're listening at home on the actual podcast, people are like, what's he talking about? But I'm holding a book in my hands. You want to go title? And also, you've got a co-author who's not going to be on the podcast today. Yeah. It's uh, The Ashes, This Thing Can Be Done. And the subtitle is The Story of the Ashes Where All the Tests Are Drawn. (laughs) And uh, that's because it's illustrated history of the ashes. And my co-author is Maha, who was the artist, who is more or less cricket agnostic, but she has done an absolutely fabulous job. Cricket agnostic. Best place to start. Thanks for coming on. It's, it's a fascinating book. I don't know when I got it. It must have been a couple of weeks ago. Somehow I have managed to keep it away from my son, who will be absolutely obsessed by this book. He's already obsessed with comic books. It's not quite a comic book, is it? It's more like an illustrated history, but very, very, very well done. And it goes all the way back to the start, of course. But I thought, you know, it is a history, which is, uh, you know, you're a historian, you know, very, very well-respected historian. I think we had Abhishek on our podcast talking about your last book before this, was was it? The Cape Town yeah. Azaruddin and Sachin Tendulkar book? Yeah. That was co-written by Abhishek and me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I got him on for that one. So I'll get you on for this one. But you're very well-respected. You've written lots of different books. Where did the idea for an illustrated book on the history of the ashes come from? the illustrator and me, we are working together on a particular website where we started fiddling around with history that can be grasped by everybody. Like history can be pretty intimidating for a lot of people, especially the people bred on Twitter, anything more than 140 characters that can be a bit intimidating. So this is uh, something that we had in mind. And as the idea grew, we thought that it can be a book where everybody has something in it. So even the very, very hardcore researchers and historians, they will find something new and there will be lots of double meanings wordplay, which is specifically because this is of this format. 
we can build in a lot of things like you talked about Winston Churchill and Bradman. They had met, but no one had photographed that incident. So we can put them together. And along with it, uh, there are lots of double meanings. So this is cricket with balls, right? This uh, this podcast. So I can tell you, just uh, take a look at the place where we discuss uh, Mussolini being dead and uh, the uh, war authorities, they discussing uh, this incident with cricketing metaphors. There is something there for you later on. And uh, this is going as far into the depth without sacrificing anything, but making it accessible to everybody. Mm. Both of us thought that that would be a good uh, idea. It's great. I, I've really enjoyed it. I've managed to keep it away from my younger son who loves sports history, bizarrely, and comic books. So It's in the genes, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to get his hands on it already, so I'll be passing it to him next. But let's just go through some of the stories because Test cricket is so over-talked about. Oh, sorry, not Test cricket. Ash, Ashes cricket is so over-talked about. But there's some really, really yeah. cool little things that you've obviously animated or designed and drawn through in this particular book. Let's start with the actual birth of the Ashes in 1882. A big part of the reason we have the Ashes today is because W.G. Grace was a bit of a horrendous human being and Sammy Jones hits the ball out on the leg side. He has a look at W.G. Grace, allegedly, nods his head at W.G. Grace, walks down to do some gardening on the pitch. W.G. Grace picks up the ball and takes the bales off. Basically, that little moment there is almost the beginning of the first time almost in history that national sport becomes a really big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that infuriated Spoforth, as we know, Spoforth, the demon bowler, Fred Spoforth. And what he said, again, allegedly, because we cannot be sure, what he said to the Australian teammates uh, in the dressing room when they were just going out to defend 84 runs, uh, England needed 85 to win. He said, this thing can be done. And that's how we got the title of our book. That's one of the defining moments. And WG just said that I taught the young lad a lesson. Apparently, I can't remember where it was, but I remember reading another history book at one stage that 50 years later, someone brought it up to him and he was still absolutely furious by what W.G. Grace had done. I think that, I suppose it's not quite a sort of a man can't incident, is it? it but it's, it's a bit more like, uh, I'm trying to remember, was it when the New Zealanders took the bales off when Murali and Kumar Sangakara were celebrating his hundred? It's one of those sort of grey areas. But at the same time, I think you and I would probably both agree, don't leave your crease would be the most important thing here, especially when the ball is still live. Yeah. But that test is the beginning of the Ashes legend, isn't it? That's where the poem, or the poem, do we call it a poem? Limer I, I don't know. The original mention of the Ashes really come from, isn't it? It was actually a mock obituary, you can say, mm. that uh, English cricket is dead and the Australians are taking the Ashes away. And that's where he end as well, that the Ashes in itself is dead now. What to do about it after this current series, 2022 series? So you obviously illustrate that. That is it's obviously an important time for cricket, but it's a very important time for national sport because WG Grace did things like that all the time in local games. And if someone from Somerset was upset at him, it's not the same as doing it in international sport, which was what cricket was eventually built on, right? That's the first story of the Ashes. The actual urn and bales and, and all that story is something else. And it's from a place in Melbourne, well, actually outside of Melbourne called Sunbury, where nothing of interest has ever happened ever, and I can tell you this because I've been to Sunbury many times, except for the fact that there's a little place there called Rupertswood. Do you want to tell us the story of Ivo Bly and Rupertswood? Yeah, so Ivo Bly was the captain of England and one of the amateur captains who ensured that the team played with 10 and a half men. <laughs> he hardly did anything of particular note in the cricket itself, but he fell in love during that tour, fell in love with the governess who 
was working at Rupusud for uh, Grandy, who owned the mansion. And uh, her name was Florence, Florence Murphy. So she was uh, wooing her and uh, courting her. And when the third test ended, the Melbourne ladies presented I would lie with the urn. And some say it was the burnt bale, some say it was the burnt ball, and some even say that it was the veil, veil, you know, the veil mm. that uh, Florence wore. No one is sure, but that was the symbolic urn, and people are crazy about that uh, today. There is one particular place where uh, we depict this in, in the book, and uh, there are two onlookers who are fictitious. One of them makes a tongue-in-cheek comment that Ivo is standing with uh, Florence, and this is where the captain actually scores. And the other says that it's 1882, innuendos are 100 years away. (laughs) But we also point out that one of the earliest lyrics of cricket had an innuendo called Madge, and that was way, way back in the 17th century. So uh, there are lots of nuggets which one can discover in the book. Yeah, and it really is important to note how random that Sunbury and Rupertswood are such a big part of cricket, considering all the big cricket grounds that it's ever been played on. And as someone who grew up around the corner, uh, or not too far down the road from uh, Rupertswood, I didn't even know when I was a kid that that's where the whole thing started. So it's so bizarre, but I suppose cricket's so bizarre. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team, even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live, because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. And talking about So Bizarre, here's one of my favorite stories ever, but I'm going to let you explain it the way that you do in the book. Ted Pooley, who was the Surrey wicketkeeper and should have been England's first test wicketkeeper, but he wasn't because... So Ted Pooley, he was supposed to be the wicketkeeper in the great match, as it was called, which went on to become the first test match in 1876-77. It was actually 15th March, 1877, and that's Ides of March and all that. He was in a prison in New Zealand because he had fallen out over some betting-related complications. And we all think cricket was so pure, so pristine, and uh, people played for the glory, and uh, they were just about to sprout their wings as angels. But... It was all full of this sort of incidents all the time. And talking about that, 1877, when the first Test match was played, that was before the birth of Ashes. But we still cover that. We actually say that we are not going to cover all these things, and we talk about all those things. (laughs) And even WG (laughs) going uh, to Australia in 1874 on his honeymoon, actually, and earning a lot of money as an amateur, (laughs) all that we cover. Yeah, I mean, the Ted Pooley story, it's incredible because, as you say, it's before the Ashes, it's the first test, but at that stage, they didn't even know it was the first test because there'd be many matches called a test at that stage. So he didn't know he missed out on being England's first test. But the match-fixing stuff is so fascinating, or the corruption stuff, I should say, is so fascinating because Hooley was the umpire in the game, and he was also betting on the game that he was in. I don't think it was a first-class game even, was it? I think it was just a tour game. It's just a tour game against odds, against the odds. Yeah. 
was there 22 players on the other side or something yeah. like that? And what he realized was if the other team was so bad, they needed 22 players. He bet yeah. on the Ducks. <laughs> bet on the yeah, because yeah. he knew yeah. that there'd be a lot of players that couldn't play. So he bet on the Ducks. And of course, then he was umpiring. So he probably gave out a couple of them as well. And that's when the whole problems came about. And then he attacked the man who owed him money. But just, again, a fascinating, really early side. And as you say, and you're really good at covering this in the book, that you talk a lot about the money side of things, which is, you know, for yep. me, I think when the English people wrote the history of cricket, the money side of it was a little bit more airbrushed out of history. Whereas I think when us Australians and you Indians and some of the West Indians write about it, the money's right there in the front. Yeah, like as you point out in the book, it was the post-war, that is post-Great War period, whenever there is a tragedy, when you look back and you think that all that happened before that was absolutely great, absolutely pristine. So post-war ethos of cricket, uh, of Plum Warner and then Neville Carter, obviously, they tried to paint the picture that cricket was such a glorious game with glorious amateur tradition and all that. But Again, it was full of these conflicts we have covered throughout the 19th century, uh, professionals trying for more money, more pay, and amateurs. Actually, there is a scene where WG takes his team to Australia in 1891 again, and there somebody saying that our allowance won't cover his wine allowance, you know, our, our fees. <laughs> so he will drink enough to sink the ship. So all these things happened, and there were rebellions, like people refused to pay, and even in the Australian side, there were bickering about money. Sometimes they had to field second 11s mm. or even worse because the main cricketers were not uh, satisfied with the money. And this uh, money problems actually came to a head when the Australian Cricket Board was formed. And that ultimately became the big six issue when uh, six of the best cricketers, starting with Clem Hill and Rick Trumper and all of them, they just refused to tour. And in the first ever test tournament that uh, happened in uh, 1912, Australia fielded a second string side. So that triangular, I suppose it's the first major triangular in cricket. I'm sure there'd been domestic versions of it, but certainly from a national point of view, Australia, England, and South Africa. South Africa had just got good. You cover them in the book, you know, the leg spin, or the wrong and and Bosi specifically. But that triangular was an absolute disaster. You've got that in the book. I think it's worth mentioning because it's also where we get the ICC from. The ICC comes out of a complete shit show. No one's going to be surprised there. The Australian players, I mean, you say they refuse to go. It's kind of, we'd probably call it a strike now. Victor Trumper yeah. was, was seen as this pure person, but went on strike because he wasn't being paid properly. The Australian 11 was very poor, but also, if I remember correctly, was there not a little bit of rain on that series? It's uh, an understatement, a little bit of rain. It was the rainiest summer for uh, like 100 years or so. And so many matches were washed out. and. Actually, I mean, these googly bowlers, they did not really like the soft English wickets and uh, they didn't perform. And some of them were over the hill as well. So ultimately, it was a mismatch. The South African tests were not really very well contested. And by the time it was all over, like people were praying that (laughs) it would be over soon. And if there was more rain and it uh, dragged on, that would have been the end of cricket. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? The only thing that lasted out of that stupid series is the ICC, which haunts us to this day. But that's for another yeah, book for us. Yeah, that was Imperial Cricket Conference at that time. So Yeah, exactly. The name is, if you take away the word cricket, it sounds like a Batman villain, the Imperial Council. Let's go back. There's some really fascinating things, some that I knew about and some that I hadn't heard about. One was, I, and I don't think I knew about this till I was reading your book. You've written in the book that Billy Murdoch took a catch against his own team. Yes. Take me through that. 
So WG was off the ground and Billy Marduk was substituting for him. He was the captain of the Australian side, but he was actually substituting for WG. Now, why was WG off the field? Was he doing another business deal or just having a rest or... That I really have to look up. I'm, uh, no, I just wondered, you know, is it a Juna Ranatunga moment? I think he was just uh, called away either injury or he had some patient to look at. But he was off the field. That's the crux. And Marduk, like those days, it was not so formalized. Even though Test cricket had officially started, no, no one really started calling them Test matches until a lot later. And uh, the T of the Test matches became capitalized only in the 1890s. So in the 1880s, it was still like an informal atmosphere. And WG and Marduk were great, great friends. And Marduk just substituted without really thinking. And we also have to take into consideration that when there were matches those days, often only 11 people played. Uh, when Australian 11s travelled to England, mm. there were often actually 11 people and a manager. And the manager sometimes uh, came into play, like Charles Beale. He came into play some matches because people were injured and all that. So that was also a constraint that they had to deal with. I mean, we've moved so far in cricket that we're still at a point. I think when Ireland were in the West Indies, their batting coach had to play in a couple of games for them. So it still occasionally happens, but it is phenomenal to see that. Is that the only time in history that uh, someone has caught someone on their own team? I can't imagine it happened that often. No, it has happened. Even in uh, India, it did happen. I think Hanuman Singh actually substituted for the English cricketers for some time. So sometimes, uh, especially when you were coming to India in the 1950s and 60s, uh, foreign teams did have this tendency to pick up this stomach bugs and you needed a lot of replacements. So there was one time when Henry Blofeld almost played a test match because of that, because so many people were indisposed. So at that time, uh, Indian captains did allow their fielders to field for the others as well. So yeah, that has happened from time to time. It's not the only incident, but uh, taking a catch for them in a test match, that was the first time, and I think it's the only time. Absolutely brilliant. Fred Tate is another story that I don't think enough people know the full Fred Tate story. You obviously you, you know got a couple of panels on it in the book. Take me through Fred Tate and, I suppose, his son eventually. Yeah, so Fred Tate, he was a decent bowler in county cricket, but he was not a good fielder at all. And what had happened was England were uh, in a, the teams were locked in a very close tussle where every run was vital. And uh, Joe Darling, the Australian captain, he was uh, at the crease. And that was a very vital wicket because a few runs here and there, and that would have, uh, and that was uh, being played at uh, Old Trafford. And this Lynn Brond was bowling. And because Darling was a left hander, he needed either he was a leg spinner. Len Brown was a leg spinner. He needed somebody good at deep mid wicket. But the field had changed over, and McLaren, the English captain, he wanted to complete the over quickly. Brown wanted Ballarat to stand in the deep mid wicket. But uh, Tate was standing there, and uh, McLaren said, please go on and complete the over. And as it happened, that uh, Darling slogged. It was a skier, and Fred Tate, he used to stand in the slips in his uh, domestic matches, and he had no idea how to take the catch. I mean, was not used to fielding the outfield, and he dropped it. And Darling got a vital few runs, and when England batted again, they had to chase a small total. Claim Hill took a magnificent catch, and they lost by three runs. And again, the final wicket was Fred Tate's. It was a really poor match for him, and he had also come in as a replacement of uh, George Hurst. I think things were not going good for him, and then his 
supposedly again we don't know whether it's true or not supposedly he said that uh, you can make fun of me now but there is a boy growing up in my home who will set everything correct and so that was morris his son and years later yes morris tate did go and do a lot of things in ashes in the 1928-29 series that england won 4-1 under percy chapman so he was one of the key performers so yes uh, that's a uh, quite a fabulous story and fred tate had opened a pub at that time and he had uh, received the information in the pub that his son had actually gone and taken a brilliant catch in one of the close matches that uh, england won the fred tate moment is probably one of the first times when cricket sort of crosses over with the media in a way so a lot of the other stories obviously you know they were agency stories and from the 1850s onwards things start to pass around but it feels like the fred tate test match was almost like a breakthrough moment where cricket becomes a very very big part of the media and, and the way things go and that story has stayed even before we knew morris tate was going to be any good that story has certainly stayed with us why don't you take me through the jessup innings and the, we'll get them in singles Yes, so that was the final test of the series and England had already lost the series and the match was being played at the Oval and Australia had a big lead in the first innings and um, mainly because of Hugh Trumbull who had uh, scored a lot of runs and taken a lot of wickets and uh, he was an exceptional player. And on the last day, England wanted 270-odd to win and they were 48 for 5 when this crouching batsman Gilbert Jessup came into bat. And Jessup, he was a... Fast scoring batsman, but he was, if you look at his records, he, he was quite erratic. I mean, it was a hit and miss with him. And that day, he hit everything and uh, this day hit. And uh, that was a uh, tremendous innings. And uh, he scored uh, 102 in about 70, 70 odd balls. And that was a phenomenal innings. But then he got out with a few runs still to score. Uh, he was seventh out. And the ninth wicket fell with still, I think, 15 runs to get. And that was the Yorkshire pair of George Hurst and Wilfred Rhodes. George Hurst was a genuine all-rounder. Wilfred Rhodes, we must remember, he came in at number 11. Later on in his career, he became an opening batsman and uh, partnered Jack Hobbs and all that. But uh, at that time, he was decent with the bat, but not really an all-rounder. And uh, the legend is that they said, let's get them in singles and they took England to victory and that was a famous victory by one run. However, when David Frith met the old, old Wilfred Rhodes just a few years before his death, Wilfred Rhodes told him that we didn't say we'll get them in singles. We didn't use the word singles and who knows, we might have got a two. (laughs) So (laughs) these are all legends which have uh, stuck to the game, but uh, many of them are apocryphal. Uh, no one really minds unless uh, it is uh, I mean, somebody. And we capture both the incidents, like let's get them in singles and actually that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We also say that because uh, we show Rhodes actually talking to David Frith. So we have captured everything, including the innings. And that had another particular effect on English literature, which we cover in the next page, that P.G. Woodhouse was uh, working in the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank and he had just come to see the morning session And just as Stanley Jackson and Jessup were getting their partnership together, he had to leave because uh, his lunchtime was over. 
And uh, he writes in one of the versions why he gave up his job was this was the reason why he gave up his job and became a writer. There is another version when he says that he wrote a short story in one of the numbered pages of the ledger and he was called and summarily dismissed. So whatever it was. <laughs> but this match was really one of the memorable pages. Yeah, I mean, that whole series, because of the tape match and that, it's, even though the test matches are really, really close, even if the series doesn't quite end up as close. It's a fascinating little series. Up until this point, WG Grace is still very much with us and very much a part of cricket, even if he's no longer playing test cricket. This is going to shock a lot of people, but I've written about this a few times before. At this point, Australia was like the plucky underdog and everyone really liked Australia. That changes realistically after World War One, when a bloke called Warwick Armstrong comes along, the big ship. You've got a very good drawing of him as a ship in your book. I mean, I, I've always said that Warwick Armstrong, in two different ways, is the beginning of Australian cricket as we sort of know it, as in the sledging, the abuse, the arrogance. And also, he had two great fast bowlers that he used to completely bomb out England as well, which wasn't something that happened before. But take us through Warwick Armstrong and the impact he had on the Ashes. Long before the 1920-21 series when uh, Warwick Armstrong's captaincy came to the fore, and he was uh, literally the big ship at that time. He had grown in size and stature every way. But long before that, uh, in 1909 series, his uh, professionalism and his what some people will call that real Aussie spirit came into the fore because uh, that time Frank Uli was making his debut. And uh, you could bowl a few trial balls till that time. And... Uh, this young lad had come into bat for the first time in his life in a test match and uh, Warwick Armstrong continued to bowl trial balls and some accounts say that it was 20 minutes and he just kept him waiting. It's just incredible, isn't it? Like, I don't know how that was allowed. So he was just taking advantage of the rules, mm. some of the loopholes in the laws of the game. And so these are the things that this format allows us to do, like putting Warwick Armstrong as an actual big ship with all his uh, star players as the, the passengers on the deck. So this was uh, Warwick Armstrong, and uh, like he was not the only one to take advantage of the loopholes in the law. We see Douglas Jardine doing the same <laughs> later on. Mm. But Warwick Armstrong, he had these two fast bowlers, Gregory and MacDonald, and they were, I would say, the first major fast bowling pair who terrorized the opposition. Mm. To some extent, Barnes and Foster also did that in the 1911-12 series, but uh, they were not genuinely quick bowlers. But these two were genuine quick bowlers, and uh, they really, really terrorized the opposition, and uh, he was quite ruthless. He refused to even lose one single side match until an old Archie McLaren uh, put together a very, very... <laughs> put some obscure Oxford players and uh, Aubrey Faulkner, of course, the South African all-rounder, and managed to beat him. And I mean, in retrospect, we think that that was McLaren's genius. I would say a lot of it had to do with luck as well. Mm. But that was also a phenomenal achievement. And uh, Armstrong had a lot of things that he did. Like when the going was slow, he just protested by starting to read a newspaper in the ground and standing at point. And that's also something that we capture in the book. So, yeah, he was one of those bloody-minded Aussies that we see nowadays so often although he looked nothing like one of the modern day cricketers. <laughs> not physically, certainly. Maybe when he was younger, but certainly not as, as he got older. You're talking about the loopholes and, and, you know, how he played with the laws. Was it a test match where he bowled and over from each end? 
one thing that needs to be seen is that in a test match, if you look at the 1882 test match, there were overs bowled from each end because that was allowed at that time. Oh, okay, yeah. So one time in one innings, one bowler was allowed to switch ends. So if you see the scorecard of the 1882 test, Spofforth has more than half the overs. But uh, Armstrong did it in a test match. And it was like, I don't know whether he did it consciously or he knew that the um umpire was not really paying attention, but he managed to do it. That's so fascinating. I would like to think that he did it on purpose because he's Warwick Armstrong and he just wanted to do whatever he could. I don't think in cricket, he's obviously not as good a player as WG Grayson didn't have the impact, but in basically setting up the next hundred years of Australian captains being bastards, he's such an incredibly important figure in cricket. I just want to thank you so much for the book. I, you know, I think a lot of people will really, really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Sports Social Podcast Network.